Thanks for listening to this podcast from Christ Church of Orinoco. Our hope is that it would help you discover completeness in Jesus. Now for this week's teaching. Morning, church. Let's open our Bible to Exodus chapter 1. We're going to be looking at the first three chapters in the book of Exodus as you uh, click or open your Bibles to that. Uh, If you're visiting Christ Church, my name's Mark. We're glad you're here. I get to be one of the ministers here at the church, and we're beginning a series, as Spencer mentioned, called Liberated. We're going to be looking at what the Bible teaches is the methodology by which God frees us, how he uh, brings us out of what we're currently in and brings us into something new, a new kingdom, a new opportunity, uh, a new life. And we're going to begin our series this morning. In fact, the next three weeks, we're going to be spending in the book of Exodus, and then we'll go into other parts of the Bible to show you that there's a rhythm to God's liberation in all of our lives. And I want you to not only find it biblically, but we want you to find it in your own life and to experience it and to just appreciate all that God's done to to make us free. If you've never read the book of Exodus, I really want to encourage you that uh, this week to enter into it, uh, to begin to read slowly and and, uh, studying it, because it's going to be the uh, framework by which we look at the rest of the scriptures going forward to see this rhythm of God's liberation. The story of Exodus is actually the freedom that God brought his nation, the Hebrew people, the Israelites, out of Egypt and deliver them through the wilderness and into the promised land. And this story happens roughly 15 years before, or 1,515 years, 1,500 years before Jesus. And it all is led by one person who's introduced at the very beginning of the book, uh, a man named Moses. So let's begin by just making one of two points we want to open this series with. When we talk about liberation, liberation is rescue from the misery of our current slavery. This is what this, this theme of liberation in the scripture is, is God breaking us out of the slavery we're in into something new, a new kingdom, a new life, a new opportunity. The book of Exodus takes off where Genesis ends. Joseph, who had been sold into slavery by his brothers because they were jealous of him, ends up in Egypt and by the wisdom and, and uh, providence of God, he's in the right place at the right time. God had stationed him there. So when a a dream comes to the king, Pharaoh, that there's going to be seven years of plenty followed by seven years of nothing, Joseph realized what God was doing. And so in those seven years of plenty, they saved back every year. 30% of all the produce was saved back so that when the famine hit, they would not only have supplies enough for Egypt, but they actually leveraged those supplies so when other nations came needing grain and food, they would, give their, they would sell their land. They would give up their property. And Egypt became this mega force, all because of the wisdom of Joseph and what he had done. And then the Pharaoh, the king, who gave Joseph the second most power in all the land, he dies and so does Joseph. And the Pharaohs that followed did not remember all that Joseph had done to protect Egypt. And they began to become threatened by the number of the Hebrew people in their land. In fact, look with me at uh, chapter 1, verse 9 in your Bibles. Look, they have become too numerous for us. We must deal with them or they will become more numerous. And if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies and fight against us. You see, the Hebrews had such a distinct culture and the gods they worshiped were different that this new king, this new Egyptian king saw that he was at risk. He was vulnerable with the number of Hebrew people that did not honor him as their king. So he enslaved them, verse 12. The Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and work them ruthlessly. 
They made their lives bitter with harsh labor and brick and mortar and with all kinds of works in the fields. In all their harsh labor, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. They enslaved them. And not only did the Pharaoh enslave the people and was brutal to them to keep them in submission, but he also decided because of the threat of their numbers that he would have all the newborn males killed. And he commissions that any Hebrew child born male was, was to be put to death. And so he would just have the, the females grow up and they would become wives and concubines of the Egyptians and this whole nation would be absorbed into Egypt. This was his plan. But God was fully aware of what was happening to his people. In fact, if you go back in Genesis, when he's talking to Abraham, he predicts this. So at the perfect moment in time, God calls a deliverer. It's a child born by the name of Moses to a Hebrew couple of the tribe of Levi. And they have two Hebrew midwives who protect them. So by the cunning of his mom and by these two Hebrew midwives who instead of killing the baby, uh, say that they never saw him born or they, they couldn't do it, it happened too late, that all of a sudden Moses is rescued. You know the story. If you don't, I'd love you to read it. Moses is put in a basket and he's floated down the Nile River and Pharaoh's daughter sees him and takes him as her own and gives him back to the mom and the mom weans it. And when Moses becomes uh, able to eat solid foods and to grow up on his own, he's given to Pharaoh's family and he grows up in the palace. And then the next thing we find out is Moses is killing a dude, right? Quick, quick, quick. Because they're introducing Moses. But Moses sees one of his Hebrew brothers being brutalized by an Egyptian and he kills the Egyptian to stop it. He buries him in the sand thinking he'd covered up what he had done and it's discovered the next day that people are talking about it all over town. Moses knows that Pharaoh now knows. Moses is a wanted man. There's a price put on his head and he heads out to the wilderness by himself. He meets a woman named Zipporah. They get married. He has a father-in-law named Jethro. Jethro has flocks and so Moses becomes a shepherd. Before we proceed, I, I want to stop and talk about a word that's in the point that I'm making about this opening. I told you that liberation is rescue from the misery of our current slavery, and the word slavery is a horrible word. And it's a trigger word in our culture, and it should be, because slavery is always horrible and always wrong. But there are two definitions of slavery, and I want you to understand the distinction, because the point I'm making is toward the second distinction, not toward our common understanding of slavery. See, we believe that slavery, by definition, is owning another human being as your property. And that is always wrong. But there is a owning a debt to another. Part of the form of the word slavery to be enslaved is that you owe someone a debt. And you repay that debt with labor or submission. You might think of sharecropping as what this kind of enslavement would be. That if I work your land and I give you part of what I produce and the rest is mine to make a living and deprive my family, that's often what slavery was. Almost all the time that Paul talks about it in the New Testament is this form of slavery. And so you and I in our culture, we don't believe at all that slavery is, is okay and that's all right, but you are enslaved to some things. Think about a person who's done something incredibly nice for you something kind and generous. I can think of several people who have helped Heather and myself out financially when we were younger, uh, had an elder in the church give me some money so I could start my master's program. He didn't have to do that. And I felt a debt of, of enslavement to him and all the positive connotations. I feel like if he ever asked me to do anything for him, I would do it because he was so kind and generous to help me in a time I couldn't have helped myself. Are you with me? 
So when I'm telling you that when we talk about liberation, God liberates us from the misery of our current slavery to be enslaved to him, to be given to him, to be fully aware of all that God's done for us. You see, when you read the book of Exodus, the first part of it's really fascinating. And some of you will start reading it. You're like, dude, I love this. This is really awesome. They'd make a great movie, right? There's drama. There's miracles. There's parting of the Red Sea. There's armies being wiped out. There's all of this incredible drama. And then you get to the second half of the book of Exodus. And it's all about how to build this tent that becomes the traveling tabernacle and, and how to how to put furniture in it and what the furniture is supposed to look like and how it's supposed to be built. And you're like, yuck. That's why most people tap out in the middle of Exodus because it's like the story got stupid. The story got tedious. The story got full of details. But don't miss this. The book opens in slavery and it ends in worship. The reason the second half of the book is what it is is because you and I as Americans can so simply think that freedom is not having any masters. That freedom is being autonomous and powerful and able to do whatever I want, whenever I want. And let's be honest, that is a myth. You cannot live a human existence and be autonomous. You won't be successful and you'll be very, very unhappy. And you're never totally in control, are you? Remember when we were 15 or 16 and our parents told us how things were and we rolled our eyes and thought they'll be different when I'm older? Were they? No, we're not in control. We're not autonomous. The, the whole concept of personal freedom is a myth sociologically and spiritually. Who gave you life? Who created this world? Who blesses? Who answers prayers? Who's engaged in your world and cares about you deeply? It's the one you enslave yourself to. You could have answered my questions, money, fame, power, marriage, or you could have answered it, God. You see, our salvation, our liberation is the freedom to worship God as indebted lovers of God, ones who have received his goodness and appreciate this. So when we talk about being liberated, you are liberated from the thing you're enslaved to now so that you can become enslaved to God, not as a person under debt, but a person who's grateful, a person who's free, a person who now has a knowledge of who's truly in control. So the second point I want to make this morning is that this liberation comes from surrendering what we control. It's giving up those things that give us security. It's giving up those things that make us feel powerful. It's giving up this myth that if I have these things and I'm in charge of these things and I have enough of these things that I actually can control my happiness and my future and I'm in charge. You see, Moses has been rescued from the waters of the Nile and taken into Pharaoh's home by the cunning of his mom, his sister, two Hebrew midwives, and Pharaoh's daughter. And he's protected, and against all law, he's allowed to live, and he lives in the lap of luxury. He has authority, he has power, he has comfort, he has everything he needs right at his hands. He has a blessed life, right? No. All of these things in Moses' life actually have taken his eyes off the ultimate prize. It has distracted him from what God wants to do with him. And he sees a Hebrew man being beaten. So he attacks the Egyptian. He stops it. And in that, he kills the man. He steps into a moment of injustice, bringing justice. But the justice goes too far? I don't know. It's so easy to say, Moses lost his cool and he cost himself the luxury. I don't know that that's true. The text simply says he sees a Hebrew man being brutalized and he stops it. Pharaoh finds out. 
Moses bolts. All the authority, power, luxury, and privilege are gone. This blessed life is no longer blessed, it seems. Or was it? See, sometimes the way we break free is by losing what we thought we needed to survive. I think you're going to find this biblically as we walk through the Bible as a whole. The way God liberates us is he takes away our security. The way God liberates us is he takes away our sense of autonomy. The way God liberates us is he shows us reality. And reality sometimes is frightening. He takes away our myths and he gives us truth. Let's look at Exodus chapter 3. Because now Moses has been in the wilderness for 40 years. He's watching his father-in-law's flocks. And this is where we find him. Now Moses was tending to the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. And Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. And when the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. Moses said, here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals for the place where you are standing is holy ground. So how does God bring us to liberation? If we look at what he does to Moses, you're going to notice that he calls him away. He, he calls for his attention. And so how does he do this? Moses, who once was the prince of Egypt, who lived in the lap of luxury and had everything at his fingertips, is now watching not only a flock, but he's watching someone else's flock. It's not even his. He has nothing of his own. And in the midst of this reality where he realizes he can never go back to Egypt and this is his life, he's a shepherd. Well, David was a shepherd and Jesus was the good shepherd. So shepherds must be awesome. God must love shepherds above everybody else. Be careful. If you go back with me to Genesis chapter 46, you're going to notice in verse 34 that when Joseph brought his brothers and his father from the, during the famine into Egypt to protect them, he told his brothers, when you meet Pharaoh, do not tell them you're shepherds because the Egyptians can't stand shepherds. I like to mention this in December when we're in our Christmas season because we glorify and we romanticize shepherds. Do you know that shepherds could not appear in court and give testimony? They weren't considered citizens. They were ceremonially unclean because they were constantly stepping and around filthy animals. They could not go into the temple to worship. They were ostracized. They were outsiders. It was the most menial task you could perform. They were the black market of the Hebrew people. So in the midst of this, Joseph says to his brothers, don't tell Pharaoh what you do. And here is the prince of Egypt, a shepherd. Far away from home, far away from comforts, and on a mountain named Horeb all by himself. Well, I want you to just notice this. We'll talk about it in the next few weeks. This Mount Horeb means nothing to us. We're like, ah, just a, a hill called Horeb. It's going to be renamed by the end of this book, Sinai. It's the same mountain. It's called Sinai. And you might note that Moses spends a few nights on Sinai. And every time he does, he does it in the presence of God. And one time he comes down on the mountain. And you remember, Charlton Heston had a really good tan and his hair went white. When you're in the presence of God, you get changed. So on this mountain, God lights a bush on fire. Now, what's funny is if you read scholarship, if you read commentaries, you're going to find out there's a lot of debate how often this happens. You're missing the point. 
It says that Moses, verse 3, it's not going to appear on the screen, but Moses thought, I'll go over and see this strange sight. It beats looking at sheep. God gets his attention. And Moses knows that this bush catches on fire. Maybe that's common there, but the heat, the arid nature of it all, maybe it just starts burning. Anything could happen. But he notices that it's been burning and it's not burning up. Verse 4. And when the Lord saw that he had gone over to look. I don't want to make too much of this and I don't want to make too little of it either. I think we make enough of it. Moses left where he was to walk over to the bush to check it out. God had his attention. And many things happen in your and my daily life that we just write off as life. I wonder how many of those are God lighting bushes on fire so we might notice he's here. He's doing things. You see it when you see a sunset, right? You see a color in a sunset you've never seen before in your life. You think, I've never seen that shade of purple ever before. And God's in heaven going, gotcha. You notice? See a beautiful moment in nature where God gets your attention? It says that he turned aside. God uses detours like this every day of our lives. He's trying to get our attention, to turn away from the things we value. You have to leave something behind. It's not insignificant that Moses walked away from the sheep to go across the ravine to the bush. You've heard me talk about this. Sheep are dumb. They need they need attention. They're sheep that will just walk off a cliff because they don't know better. They're not intelligent animals that can be left alone. And this is his father's fortune. Moses walks away from what seemingly is the most important task to notice what God is doing. And when we let that happen in our lives, God's gonna move. He gets to the bush and the bush says to him, Moses, Moses. And he's like, how would you know? Moses said, here I am. And through a series of conversations over the next few chapters, God is going to do something that I want you to pay close attention to. When God gets your attention, he's going to complicate your life. He's not going to make it easier. God complicates your life to take away from you the slavery you're in. Moses, you're going to go back to Egypt. Wait. The only place in the world Moses can't go back to is Egypt. Because Pharaoh's got a bounty on his head. And he has to now return. And God says, no, I want you to go to Pharaoh and you're gonna challenge him powerfully. And Moses begins a series of excuses why he can't challenge Pharaoh powerfully. I don't speak well. He, I killed a man. I'm wanted. I have no authority. I have no power. I'm not in control of this. And God's like, exactly. I didn't ask you to go confront Pharaoh in your power. I asked you to confront Pharaoh in my power. And I am going to send you. And then Moses asks a great question. Okay, we just met. So who am I going to say has power since I have none? Who am I going to say sent me? And God says, tell him, I am who I am sent you. And that's helpful, isn't it? <laughs> that works. Oh, Pharaoh, I am who I am. What? And we look at this and we think, what am I supposed to make out of all of this? What does that mean? So one scholar said it this way. God is saying to Moses, Moses, I'm not who you want me to be. I am who I am. And I wonder if that wouldn't change some of the trajectory of our lives. If we realize that we may be asking sometimes God to be who we want him to be rather than just letting him be who he is because church, if we let God be who he is, it'll always be enough. Every single time. 
because God's ways are not our ways. Moses is confronted with his self, with his powerlessness. He's confronted with his own fears. And God is not negating that. I love the fact that God doesn't say to Moses, no, you're a great speaker. He doesn't. He doesn't say to Moses, you're the most powerful man on earth. He isn't. He doesn't say, well, you're going to be so amazing that Pharaoh's going to bow to you. He doesn't. God says, Moses, I don't need you. I'm inviting you to go in on my behalf, stand before the most powerful king living on earth at this time, and you tell him a greater king is telling you to stand down. You see, God will often mess our lives up so that he can straighten our lives out. What about the fire? Something very significant is taking place here. You notice if you look there at verse 5, Moses walks toward the bush. God called him, Moses, Moses. He's like, here I am. And he starts to go toward the bush. And God doesn't say to Moses, hey, Moses, give me a hug, buddy. He says, Moses, do not come any closer. Because the fire that's burning this bush and not consuming it can kill you. It will kill you. Do not go into the holiness of God as if he's your best buddy. You go in with great respect. God is saying to Moses, you're at risk right now because my holiness will eat up your sinfulness. God is not going to look away from our condition. He is going to change our condition. And God's kindness is shown to Moses that Moses does not die in the presence of God's holiness. But here's what's fun for me. Every time now that Moses meets with God, he wants more of it. Even though he's threatened and he stands before the almighty consuming God, Moses, every time he says, he's like, more, I, I, I need more. Can I see more of your glory? And God's like, this is cute. I'll give you my back. I'm going to give you this. And we know that when God just showed his back to Moses in some form of manifestation, Moses came down off the mountain transfigured. So what is it? How could Moses be in the very presence of God See the very revelation of God's power and majesty in the fire on that bush and not die. How can Moses be like the bush? Lit by the fire of God, but not consumed. Something significant is happening here. Moses himself becomes the burning bush. He will become the one who will show the purifying power and holiness of God to a world, yet he himself will not be consumed. How is that possible? This is how God liberates us. He lights us on fire. He purifies us from our sin and he brings his glory to play. And Moses can walk into the king of Egypt's throne and make demands on the king of Egypt. And every time the king of Egypt, Pharaoh says, I won't, God says, watch, you will. I am slowly going to bend your will by my power so that you submit to me Because at the end, Pharaoh will have to admit he is not, Pharaoh himself is not king of the universe. He's just met the king of the universe. And tell me, church, don't you know that one of the reasons God frees us from our sin is that he might light us on fire to show his glory to the world? Look at verse 2. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. I have taught Exodus 3 for the last 35 years. It wasn't until recently that it was pointed out to me. I was missing one of the most beautiful, poignant parts of the entire chapter. It's there in verse 2, the angel of the Lord. Church, 
Could it be him? Is it possible that that was Jesus in that bush that day? The angel of the Lord, not an angel of the Lord, but the angel of the Lord? Is this the presence of Jesus? And you may say, well, Mark, why do you want to make it the presence of Jesus? Because I want you to understand this. If it is the presence of Jesus in the burning bush, that would make sense why Moses lived because you and I will only live in the presence of the holiness of God when the angel of the Lord named Jesus went on our behalf and mediates the holiness of God through the love of God. Are you with me? Can you see that the burning bush, we all become the burning bush when we allow Jesus, the blood of Christ, to protect us from the holiness of God by the love of God. When Jesus himself took on the holiness of God and took the wrath of God upon himself so that we would not struggle. God did not ignore our sin. He dealt with our sin through Jesus so that the love of God could be displayed to us through Jesus. God turned Moses into a burning bush. I also want you to notice that if you pay attention, you're going to see this regularly. Every time you find anybody who comes into the presence of God, they are sent out. Abraham, Genesis 12, Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 6. I can go on and on and on. Gideon, Joseph, Daniel, when they come into the presence of of God, they're not just overwhelmed by the holiness of God, they are lit on fire to go out on behalf of God. Abraham left his retirement behind, the land and all that he had received as the firstborn of his father. He left all of that to go to a land he did not know that God might set him on fire and create a nation by which he would bring Jesus into the world to save us all from our sins. Isaiah. Humbled, falls on his face. What's his first words? I'm dead. And God's like, no, you're not. I'm going to light you on fire and you're going to go preach the gospel and you're going to tell people about the coming Messiah and you're going to be the voice that hearkens for generations forward about this king who's coming to set everything straight. Not the king of the world, but the king of the universe. Moses, you're going to go back to your your worst nightmare. You're gonna go back and face some of your sin. You're gonna go back and face some of your insufficiencies. You're gonna be vulnerable and at risk, but I will go with you. Who should I say sends me? Tell them the God of the universe sent you. Let the holiness of God light you on fire and see what happens. Yes, Moses, you're gonna be scared. You're not gonna have great power. You have no authority. I'm gonna give you a stick. You say you can't talk, let your brother talk. Moses, it's not going to be about you. It's going to be about me. And when we go in the name of God, God goes with. You see, liberation is when God breaks us free from the slavery we're in by us giving up the control we feel we need. It happens throughout the characters of the scriptures over and over and over If we encounter God through Jesus, through the mediation of Jesus, as he lights us on fire with the holiness of God, where there's weakness in your heart, his presence will bring courage. Where there's fear, his presence brings confidence. Where there's sadness, his presence will bring joy when happiness could never be found. And where there's a question of competency, his presence brings a deep sense of peace and hope. I'm seldom certain that when I offer something in a teaching that many people will actually be interested. 
we're distracted, we're busy, we're full, we're in control, we feel like we have enough autonomy and power that we make the best life we can for ourselves. But I'm 100% certain today that there's not a person in this room who in the deep depth of their soul doesn't need to be freed. Freed from fear, freed from pain, freed from shame, regret, remorse, free from addiction, freed from pride. All of us are holding on the best we can. We're tending someone else's sheep on a field, hoping to find purpose. God is calling you by name. Come see what I'm doing. And I may just light you on fire so that the world will know through Jesus Christ, who is King of Kings, Lord of Lords, and the liberated, liberator rather, of broken, hurting people. Has he set you free? And do you wanna be free? We'd love to show you how. It's walking in community through the blood of Jesus Christ and being set on fire by the holiness of God to introduce people to the King of Kings. Who's gonna send you? I am who I say I am. We'll send you every time. Thanks again for checking out this podcast. We hope this teaching helped you to discover completeness in Jesus and encourages you to help others do the same. For more resources or to learn about Christ Church in general, visit us online at cco.church.